0: some 12 million ukrainians have been forced to flee their homes or their country as a result of the russian invasion of ukraine millions are concentrated in poland and romania as well as in other countries in the region hungary moldova Finland, Germany, and elsewhere. How are they faring as refugees? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Rand Richards Cooper, a journalist who recently traveled for two weeks through refugee gathering places in Poland with a magician, Bill Hers, who was entertaining the kids stuck in the limbo of refuge. Rand Cooper's writings have appeared in Harper's, The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Esquire, GQ, The New York Times Magazine, and many other publications. Uh, he's a longtime reviewer for the New York Times Book Review, as well as a film critic and contributing editor for Commonweal. Rand Cooper has been writer-in-residence at Amherst College and at Emerson College. So thanks so much for being with us today, Rand Richards Cooper. My pleasure, John. Great to be with you. Great to have you. So... You have this kind of unusual story to tell about traveling through uh, Poland with uh, our magician friend, Bill Hers, visiting what I'm calling refugee gathering places, because I don't think they're camps in the perhaps familiar style, uh, and with the idea of chronicling uh, what you saw. So tell us, I mean, what did you see? I mean how accurate or inaccurate is to is it to talk about refugee you know camps or gathering places? What is what does it look like?
1: Well, first of all, John, this is just a word about how this came about. It all happened somewhat impulsively, um, as you know, because I think you were present, we were in a, a Zoom meeting of a bunch of uh, people whom we knew in college. <laughs> and when the subject of Ukraine came up, that these are can do people who are who are used to being active and trying to help solve problems. And people thought, well, what can we possibly do to help? We had seen a video um, of uh, actors who had gone into the subway in Kiev, uh, dressed up as Spider-Man and superheroes and entertained the kids who were hunkered down in the subway there. And when we saw that, people thought, wow, the, the kids were laughing so hard. And we thought, how how great, how simple that was and how great at which point, Bill Hers, um, who has made his career, as you know, as a magician, said, well, my family and I could could go over and do magic shows for for the Ukrainian kids in Poland. And I somewhat impulsively said, OK, if you do that, I'll come along and 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 write about it. Uh, so so he did. And I did. We spent 12 days there um, in four of the biggest cities of Poland, uh, Warsaw, Gdansk. Um, Woj and Krakow, and um, you're right, these are not refugee camps because it's far from, from the border with Ukraine, but as you know, Ukrainians have been streaming into Poland uh, ever since the war began in February, and through a massive effort by the Poles, an effort that has happened so, somewhat higgledy-piggledy just because of the various entities that are involved and the sheer numbers of people who've had to be helped. They have been, the, the Ukrainians have been settled in every kind of imaginable situation. Some are staying with Polish families, some are staying in dormitory like places. So the Herses gave their shows really uh, as we went from city to city, and they did about 20 or 25 shows in, in 11 days. So it was a pretty hectic schedule for them. Uh, The the shows happen in every imaginable surrounding, crowded community centers, local libraries. There was one place in Warsaw where uh, an abandoned office complex had been turned into an impromptu dormitory for Ukrainian families. Um, And and by the way, not really families. We never we almost never met a Ukrainian man. These are children and their moms. Uh, The law in the Ukraine requires that all men, between 18 and 60, unless they have a disability or have more than three children, need to stay in Ukraine and assist in one way or another with with the war effort. So one fundamental reality for the people, Ukrainian people who are in Poland, is the reality of a fractured family. Uh, And of all the many people I interviewed in these 10 days, almost none of them was a man. So um, there were big community centers where there were hundreds of people. Uh, there were, there were we did two shows in orphanages, um, and I said we. I was just I was just standing there watching and recording things. Uh, so it, the 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 variety of places that Ukrainian kids and their moms have ended up, you know, bespeaks the the drastic um, and sudden nature of this. And, that, and the challenge that the Polish organizers and, and civic authorities have had in in trying to come, come up with resources, resources of all kinds, uh, and we can talk about that. I mean, one of my take-homes from this trip is the astonishing nature of the effort that Poles are making on behalf of Ukrainians, and that's institutionally and economically, financially just enormously challenging. It's also yeah. interesting in terms of history. There's a lot to be said there.
0: Yes. Well, that is indeed interesting. And and I did want to ask you about that. I mean, that's obviously very uh, heartening to hear. Uh, But it wasn't so long ago that Ukrainians weren't necessarily the most widely loved population, I think, in Poland and other parts of Europe. And You know, it's the poorest country uh, of Europe. I mean, however you kind of define Europe exactly. But, uh, and then all of a sudden, this, you know, calamity, uh, you know, takes over the country. And Poles rise to the moment, it seems. And it's, it reminded me, and perhaps you, of the response of the Germans in 2015 to the mass influx of Syrians, Afghans, etc., and Angela Merkel's famous response that, you know, wir schaffen das, we'll, we'll manage that, we'll handle that. So is this Poland's, you know, 2015 moment? Well, it is.
1: Um, there was a lot that I I didn't know going in, um, and and uh, one basic thing was just the sheer size of this effort. I interviewed the deputy mayor of Gdynia, which is which is one of three cities in the north: Gdansk, um, Gdynia, and, and one other that make up a sort of tri-city area. And I after there had been a show at a at a science center, overrun with with Polish and Ukrainian kids, and by the way. Some of these shows were logistically complicated linguistically, especially if they were Polish and Ukrainian kids there together. So sometimes we, we had a Bill and his daughter, Dana, who were the two chief. They were the two magicians. His son, Zach, and his wife, Gwen, helped as support for the show. But So Bill and Dana would speak in English. And then we would have one interpreter interpreting in Polish and another interpreter interpreting in Ukrainian. And occasionally Russian was was done as well. So these were logistically complicated shows. Uh, and uh, so you have to picture this big, gleaming science center with hundreds of kids running around and finally settling in to see the, the magic show. And by the way, the HERSes are just terrific magicians and their family act unfailingly. Um provoked the kids to hilarious laughter. And one recurring motif for me as an observer was seeing a group of Ukrainian kids who were just having the time of their lives and their moms sitting in chairs behind, just being thrilled at the fact that their kids, who have faced so much adversity and uncertainty, were themselves being thrilled. It was also an hour where the moms didn't have to be managing the kids. And a lot of times the moms were taking photos with their phones clearly to send these photos back home to their husbands in Ukraine saying, look, our, you know, our kids are having a good time. Anyway, after that show, I interviewed the deputy mayor of Gdynia. Um, and she told me that her city has a population of uh, 800,000 and, and that there are about a hundred thousand Ukrainian refugees. This has astonished me. I mean, you know, and she said that figure holds true for uh, all, pretty much all over Poland. So imagine a situation a comparable situation in the United States where one out of eight people in the country was say, a refugee from Canada or Mexico. I mean, there aren't even enough Canadians you know to do that. It would be as if we had about thirty five million refugees show up in this country within eight weeks and uh and we had and we decided to give them free housing, free schooling, free psychological support um the, the, the deputy mayor said this is just a, a massive, massive infrastructural problem. For instance, they want to provide counseling for, uh, for these kids. Uh, and so they have to get counselors who will speak Ukrainian. Now, most of these kids actually speak Russian as well as Ukrainian. But because Ukrainians feel compelled to abandon Russian, even if it is their mother tongue, and for many of the people we were dealing with, because they're from eastern Ukraine where the fighting has been, they actually speak Russian. They grew up speaking Russian in their families, their marriages, their schools. Uh, so, so now the poles have to find uh, social workers and psychologists who are both trained and can speak Ukrainian. There aren't enough apartments. Um, it's it's just it's a huge effort. And to finish off, uh, to answer the remaining part of your question about this being um, the Polish-German moment, I, I kept looking for uh, for signs of, of backlash um, because, again, I imagine, like, you know, what would happen in this country if we decided to provide all those services overnight for 35 million people? Poland is not a particularly wealthy country. Um, and, and, and this is creating, you know, huge stresses, but I found almost aside from like one taxi driver who said, you know, you can't even find an apartment in Warsaw now because the Ukrainians have them. And some of these Ukrainians are rich, you know, but they just come, came here and take all the best flats. It was like three people who said something like that. Most of the polls said something like, as soon as this started happening, we knew what we had to do. And it was the obvious thing to do. And, and I think It was the obvious thing to them because, as you know, John, as a history-minded sociologist, especially one who is a Germanist, the Polish nation has a 200-plus-year history of being conquered, divided, and gobbled up by, by aggressive, colossal neighbors. You know, Prussia and Germany and Russia have pretty much feasted on Poland intermittently, for centuries now, and and a sense of the awfulness of being um, brazenly assaulted by empire-minded neighbors is sort of, I think, built into the into the DNA of the of Poles and of their national historical memory. I'll say one last thing because you brought it up. It's true that the history between Ukraine and and Poland has been complicated and, and fraught at times. Um, during World War II, there was a Ukrainian puppet state that was quite Nazi-friendly, as as you know, uh, and Ukrainians were implicated in massacres of Poles in some areas along the Polish-Ukrainian border. That's not all that long ago. So the Poles have had to metabolize um, some pretty, pretty big chunks of adverse history in order to to get to the generosity they're at now at that event at the science center, there was a rather charming organizer, a big guy named Boris. He said, Russian name, but I'm Polish. And, um, he he loved Americans, uh, partly because his mom had been married to a Texan for a while. And so this guy Boris would do this bizarre (laughs) impersonation of a Texas twang sort of, you know overlaid with some Slavic stuff um, and and would repeat some unrepeatably raucous things that his stepfather had liked to say, but um I asked him about this about the um the Polish Ukrainian relationship, and he said, you know it's it's not that we love the Ukrainians that that much, although we've had good relations with them, it's that we hate the Russians." uh and he said you know the russians have effed us again and again and they're effing us still so so part of what's going on is sort of contending historical memories but i but you know but above all i think that it, there's a great museum in gdansk the museum of uh world war 2 and it documents the soviet on the one hand and the nazi aggressions against Poland and there's one room where you walk down a narrow hall and 15 foot high flags on either side one side the red Soviet flag the other side the Nazi flag and as you claustrophobically walk between these these two giant flags, you you feel that sense of being of being squashed that um, between two greedy giants that that, that Poland felt and I, I felt over there often that that echoes of World War II were were you know quite were quite audible and um and were involved in the Polish generosity on behalf of Ukraine.
0: Yes, it is striking how these historical memories play out in these kinds of situations. I mean I, I wondered whether you were gonna get around to saying that some part of this simply had to do with getting back in Russia who after all is at the root of all this, right? So, I mean that's why these Ukrainians are in Poland at this point. So, right.
1: I mean, and you know, again when I was in Gdansk, and looking out over the harbor and where as you know the the war began um, when the German battleship fired the first first shots on the harbor in September 1st, 1939 and and as you know, John, Hitler had been seeking a fig leaf for these actions, and found it at least enough to justify it to the German public by stoking them with with falsehoods and and inflaming them with with patriotism, saying that poles were killing germans um which you know was was not true um and there are you know there are to my mind anyway some pretty clear parallels with with Putin who I see. I mean, the Ukrainians I met—they're convinced that Putin is actually a madman, that he's that he's crazy. I—I I don't know. I, you know, I'm not inside his mind, but I tend to see him as just a an aggressive and brazen authoritarian who's who decided he could get something and and he's taking it. There's, but there is a sort of Lebensraum like aspect to to, to this um, that involves claiming not not only claiming Ukraine, you know, as a conquerable war prize, but in fact, defining it as, as Russian. Um, it's, it's, an, it's an incursion not only into Ukrainian territory, but into Ukrainian identity. When I would go through Poland, as you know, I lived in Germany for years, so I tend to see things through a German lens. All these cities that we were going to they have these sort of shadow German names, Gdansk, ist Danzig, Lodz was Lichtmannstadt, um, Wroclaw, the German's called Breslau. And, and I remembered in the city of Mainz where I lived, I'm, they probably have taken it down now, there was a sculpture, a memorial along the Rhine, um, a sort of um, concrete obelisk, and it said, Deutschland ist unteilbar. Germany is not divisible and it listed all those names of eastern european cities the ones i just recited and others in german. So so there is this this way in which you know the germans were constantly trying to say this is germany and 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 we we are rightfully taking what is historically a german land. And Putin is doing that same thing. At one point i was talking with one of our interpreters a young Ukrainian woman named Anya and a social worker named Tatyana, who was working at, at one of the orphanages. They both grew up in Eastern Ukraine, one in Odessa, the other in Slovyansk. These are both cities that have been involved in, in fighting, especially Slovyansk. And they grew up speaking Russian and they were speaking Russian, you know, with each other in our van. And um, there's a, there, there's a way in which, you know, their, their, their Russianness is forming a Partly a, a pretext for 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 what Putin is doing. Um, and when I I brought up a topic with him, I want to raise the topic of the fact that Ukraine had been persuaded by the Americans to give up its nuclear weapons in the nineteen nineties. Because I wanted them to speculate. You know, some people have claimed, well, if that hadn't happened, this wouldn't be happening now. But even as a sort of condition for raising that topic, I said to them. They, they, they're very young. They're like, you know, in their early 20s. They didn't seem very familiar with this history. And I said, you know, Ukraine gave up its nuclear weapons when it became an independent country after the fall of the Soviet Union. They broke in. They jumped all over me. They said, Ukraine has always been an independent country. And, you know, I said, I, I know, I know that. I know that. But I'm, I'm, I'm talking specifically about the breakup of the Soviet Union. They wouldn't even go there because the notion that Ukraine is an independent country has been forcefully denied by Putin and it's part of the pretext he's used for 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 taking Ukraine. So again, you know, another echo of really bad stuff that happened in World War II. As is the fact that at least allegedly many Ukrainian children have been shipped off to to Russia. As you know, John, the Nazis would vet Polish children and the ones they found racially acceptable would be then Essentially adopted in, into the Reich, so um, I, I found these historical echoes of uh, authoritarian states seeking Lebensraum while taking an eliminationist position toward a whole other nation. You know, to be you know um, sort of ominously familiar, and 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 the poles do too, and I think
0: that's what they're reacting. It seems to me there have been two basic explanations of what Putin is doing, and one is you know that he has long Opposed the idea of NATO expansion to his borders, uh, and that has been a if you like, a sort of realist interpretation about why he's doing what he's doing and then there's one that has to do with you know his famous remark about how the collapse of the Soviet Union or the dismantling of the Soviet Union was the worst disaster for the Russians in the 20th century, and that there are these kind of you know sort of imperial uh, visions that he has of, you know, reconstructing the Soviet empire in effect, and, uh, um, you know, sort of bringing Ukraine, you know, back, Heimins Reich, so to speak, I mean, back into the empire. And I think, you know, then there's the additional kind of claim that he's crazy, which seems in any case unsubstantiable, I mean, simply unprovable. Um, but, um, I mean, I guess, uh, I sort of wonder, I mean, one of the things that we've seen during the time that you've been there or were there, uh, was, uh, stories about people returning from Poland and elsewhere, I guess, um, to Ukraine, despite the fact that, you know, many interpretations, you know, think that, uh, this war is going to go on for quite a long time and. Uh, assuming and hoping that, you know, Putin doesn't decide he's cornered or he's in some existential crisis that leads him to, you know, lash out with nuclear or other weapons, unconventional weapons. Uh, So what is that about? I mean, what are these people thinking when they're going back? I mean, there has been this kind of narrative of late that the Ukrainians are, if not winning the war, they're keeping the Russians from winning and uh, and understandably, I mean, being a refugee is not a fun position to be in. Uh, their men are back home, as you've described, uh, and maybe they just decide they'd rather be in those kind of desperate circumstances back at home uh, than in a, you know, cot in a huge gym with 300 other people and, you know, regular regimented meals or something like that. So what's your sense of, you know, how people are managing in the in the refugee situation, other than the hour or so that Billy Harris and his daughter
1: so could let, distract let me, them.
0: Let me break that down into
1: two parts, and if I forget about the second part, you'll remind me. The second part has to do specifically with the welfare of the kids we met and what I was able to find out about it. The first part is the first part of your question about about people going back. Uh, it's been an interesting feature of the past month that there's there's been significant movement in both directions um, I'm, I'm not that as that people continue to leave Ukraine, but people are also returning. Those are different people from different parts of the country. I'm not sure if in Poland it's a net loss or a net gain. But um, I, I'd say a couple of things about that. First of all, um, several Ukrainians I met expressed chagrin that they had somehow managed to be surprised by this. Uh, one woman I met from, uh, from Kiev basically said, well, a woman I met, another woman I met from Eastern Ukraine, who's a lawyer who spoke, came up to me after one of the shows, and she spoke perfect English. She's a lawyer and an economist. I'll say more about her later. She said, your government was was telling us this would happen. The UK government was telling us this would happen, but we didn't believe it. I heard that over and over again. We just didn't believe it. We were surprised. Um, they they were surprised that Russia would, would do this. and." And you know, part of that surprise has to do with how deeply intergrown the roots of the Ukrainian people, especially in eastern Ukraine, and Russians are through language, through intermarriage. The number of people I met who have a Russian parent, two Russian parents, Russian grandparents, I think they thought that these cultural, linguistic, personal, and familial ties would immunize them. When push came to shove against this kind of invasion. So, when it happened, even though for us in the West, it, it seemed like the storm cloud that had been hovering for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, and our government was predicting it all the time, when it happened, they were stunned. And here, the sound of rockets, mortar explosions in their major cities, including in Kyiv, they, they panicked and they cleared out en masse and, uh, and I think some of those people, especially from Kiev, at this point are, are going back, partly because uh, obviously the Russians seem to have retrenched somewhat, refocused their aims. Um, and, and there is obviously intense and serious fighting going on, but it is uh, mostly in the east. And so I think you're going to see continued movement back all other things being equal, in, into the western and central parts of the country. But as the war becomes an ongoing slog in the, in the east, people are are continuing to leave. I want to get back to one other thing, if you'll just remind me later, John, and, and that is the kind of fiendish nature of the division that, that this war has caused. I just want to bracket that and get back to it. But let me get to the second part of your question about how they're doing in Poland. One of the shows we did in a town outside uh, Warsaw, about an hour west of there, uh, a place called Rybno, I spoke with a teacher, a Polish teacher, who has inter- helped integrate some of the Pol- uh, Ukrainian kids into the schools. And by the way, that's a very difficult challenge. We did visit one school in Warsaw that had been set up just for Ukrainian kids. And for them, it was like a little bit of home in the middle of warsaw all their teachers are ukrainian there are several such schools in in the bigger cities in poland but much more often the kids are being streamed and integrated into polish schools which is difficult you know they don't they don't speak the language uh and that that, that presents all sorts of staffing challenges and management challenges uh i asked this teacher ludwika was her name how the kids are doing and she said and she was not the only one who said this there's a big difference between The Ukrainian kids who came early and the Ukrainian kids who came later, because that first outflow of people who left as soon as the bombs started falling, a lot of those kids were not exposed to any actual warlike situation. You know, their parents said we're going and they left, but the teacher said the kids who came later, they often saw things, and I heard plenty of stories about harrowing escapes under fire. Actually, people from neighborhoods where buildings were destroyed, where where people were killed, and this teacher said. Those kids are—they're—they're they're in a completely different situation. Some of them won't talk much. They don't laugh. you, you touch them on the shoulder and they—they they flinch. And there's a lot of concern about long-term emotional and psychological problems that these kids have. You know, that said, they are—they are really getting great care and and great treatment. And once again, I—you know—I couldn't be more impressed. The the woman who was the lawyer and the economist who came up and spoke with me and after one of the shows and, and I asked her what she would have said six months ago or a year ago if someone had told her that in a year you'll you'll be living in exile in an abandoned office complex in Warsaw and she said well that is not possible she said and in fact even now every day this is we this is a dream and we keep thinking you know we're, we're going to wake up but we don't wake up she said given that the the efforts that the Poles have made on their behalf are are truly remarkable. Uh, this was a couple of days after the Orthodox Easter, and across Poland, the Poles, who obviously are Catholic and don't celebrate the same Easter on the same day, made a massive display of Orthodox Easter, including preparing uh, all over the place holiday foods, certain certain kind of bread called Pascha. That's a, a Ukrainian. Um, uh, festive, festive bread. They put on dance shows. And, uh, this woman, whose name was Anna, had her 12-year-old daughter there with her. Sophie. And Sophie is a gymnast and a dancer, and she's already been able to find gymnastics and dance classes in Warsaw. And when I asked Sophie, who didn't speak much English, how, how she was feeling and, you know, how, how life in Poland for her was, her mother said to her, show him. And the girl backed off, and then she did a cartwheel and like jumped up, you know, beaming. You know, I was so struck by the courage, really the fortitude of these Ukrainians in dealing with such unexpected ruptures and maintaining a, a clearly hopeful um, stance on their future, however uncertain it is. And also, um, as, I, as I've said several times, by the extraordinary efforts the Poles are, are making, this Ukrainian woman, Anna, said, the Polish people, that they have the biggest heart of anyone in the world. So part of my stay there was sort of like, like a PR campaign for for Poland. Uh, so anyway, the kids, I think um, it's really, really a, a, a mixed bag. Um, kids are pretty adaptable and flexible. And I will say also this. You know, the kids, they're dealing with, with a sudden unexpected rupture. Bill Hurst and his family comes in, just does an hour of magic. The kids are having a blast. You know, they, they have... Day to day challenges, you know, but adults have the larger burden of understanding, among other things, the geopolitics of the moment and the existential threat that their country is facing. Um, so I, so I think, you know, the, the emotional and psychological burden is even harder on the parents. And every now and then I'd look out at the audience of moms sitting there and, and while most of them would be, uh, clapping, laughing and taking photos, every now and then you'd see a woman just sitting there with a, with a blank Stare on her face, you know, a sort of thousand-yard stare, and and you shudder to think what
0: you know what she was thinking about. Um, So, so people are stunned, right? I'm sure there must be despondency, but it's great. It's great to hear that there's so much uh, receptivity to this, you know, population that's in such a difficult situation. Uh, But I wanted to get back, perhaps, to round out the discussion to the issue that you raised and wanted me to come back to, and I. I think that was you said the word fiendish or fiendishness, uh, and I think you were referring to the way in which the Russian invasion has, you know, separated these two populations and made them antagonistic to each other in ways that hadn't necessarily been the case before. Right.
1: Yeah, Anna, Anya, um, one of our interpreters, and and Tatiana, uh, the social worker who was working the op- orphanage, <clears throat> they were talking. In the van as we were going from one show to another, speaking Russian, and I would get occasional translations. And um, I, I had asked them about their relations with with Russians. Anya had a boyfriend who was Russian. He lived for twelve years in Ukraine. Then he moved to St. Petersburg. Anya had considered moving to Russia. She went there and 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 looked at it and uh, didn't really see a future for herself there. This was a couple of years ago. She and the boyfriend broke up and stayed in touch. Once this war started, she kept sending him materials about russian aggressions and even atrocities in in ukraine and he he rebuffed her and said you know this war has nothing to do with me i i don't want to hear about it i'm focused on my studies um and and he was non-receptive so they they stopped contact um and <clears throat> both anna uh, Anya and um tatiana referred to as many Ukrainians do, Russian propaganda that that Russians are being fed lies uh, and about about Ukraine. For instance, that people in Ukraine who speak Russian are being beaten, and as we know, Putin has charged that that uh, Ukrainian Russians are being beaten, even killed. And and An and Anya and Tatiana said, "This is ridiculous. We're speaking Russian right now." Um, and and I I it made me think about. The, the very particular plight of Eastern Ukrainians. You know, this division, it's clear now, it seems clear that Putin wants to shear off that part of the country and take it. And he's not going to get the whole country. He wants that part. Maybe he's going to get it. So there's a division of a country territorially. But this division extends within families. Anna, the not Anya, but Anna, the lawyer and, and economist, told me that her, her mother, who's in her 70s, is Russian, but had lived in Ukraine a long time. And and she said, My mother cries, she cried every day for a month. She could not believe that her country, original country, was doing this to her adoptive country. Families are being divided. Tatiana came, she fled Ukraine with her mother and her brother, and they are all in Poland. And I asked about her father. And she was quiet. And then she said, she didn't speak English that well. She said, He he went. Another way, and I said, "Well, what do you mean?" She said, "In 2014, when the Russians came the first time and invaded her village, she was in eleventh grade then. uh, After that, her father went with the Russians, and she hasn't seen him in eight years. So her family's been torn apart by this. And then, you know, and then finally, it's sort of divide and conquer even within individuals. Um, An Anya, Tatiana, their families." They, they growing up where they grew up you could choose to go to a Ukrainian school or a Russian school they went to Russian schools Russian is their mother tongue but um they feel they can't really use it anymore so so there's this, this divide and conquer is happening territorially within communities within families and and in a sense within individuals and so when an individual is divided and conquered and his or her mother tongue becomes, an instrument and symbol of an aggressive oppressor. Man, you know, that that is a that is a predicament that sort of reaches every molecule of uh of you know of your personal fiber. It's it's really hard hard to imagine that. So I, I see this huge distinction between people from Western Ukraine, which where Ukrainian language is more basic, where the affiliation has long been with Europe and Eastern Ukraine. And the predicament of the Eastern Ukrainians, who are the overwhelming majority of people that we we dealt with, you know, really is um, is is profound, complex, and, and hard.
0: Well, it's a fascinating, if uh, sad and unfortunate story. I mean, it reminds me of this joke about uh, you know the guy who says he grew up in Austria and went to university in Czechoslovakia and retired in Ukraine and. Uh, you know, the person he's talking to says, Oh, you really got around? And he says, No, I never left my village. Uh, I mean, it just sounds like a very East European, although in some ways, you know, uh, a, a kind of story characteristic of other war torn places where borders have moved around historically. In any case, thanks so much for your insights about what's going on in the refugee situation among. Ukrainians, primarily in Poland. That's it for today's episode. I want to thank Rand Cooper for sharing his insights about the refugee situation in Poland. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and App podcasts. I want to thank Oswaldo Nena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us, and we look forward to have you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.